1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Foster, Senior Writer at Barron's. Thanks so much for joining us for what I hope will be a very timely conversation on the 60-40 portfolio and the role that alternatives can play in asset allocation. I'm really delighted to have Phil Huber here today. Phil is Chief Investment Officer at Savant Wealth Management. Phil is both a Chartered Financial Analyst and a Certified Financial Planner and author of the book, The Allocator's Edge, A Modern Guide to Alternative Investments and the Future of Diversification. Welcome, Phil.
0: Thank you for having me, Lauren. It's great to be here.
1: It's really great to have you. We're going to start with our old friend, the 60-40 portfolio. Um, As you and listeners know, this has been the bedrock of asset allocation and has delivered really strong performance, but it's a bit of a different story this year. A uh, 60-40 mix of stocks and bonds is down about 11%. And perhaps the worst part of it is bonds are down double digits, just like the stock market. And it seems just about every year we are writing the eulogy for the 60-40 and some are asking, you know, is it really dead this time? So perhaps we can start there and just with the sort of the framework of what was the 6040 portfolio designed to do and perhaps why isn't it working so well right now?
0: Sure, yeah, I think it's important to step back and and take a look at like, why did this simple mix of stocks and bonds become so popular over time? Why has it become the default assumption or, or the default choice for many advisors, allocators, investors? And really, it kind of boils down to a handful of things. One is, as you mentioned, the, the historical performance. In other words, it, it's kind of done its job in terms of delivering pretty meaningful returns in, in a relatively diversified and risk risk managed way. Um, the other is that um, it's gotten increasingly easy to implement over the years. You know, due to its simplicity, you can really get a globally diversified stock bond portfolio uh, with just a couple of clicks of a mouse and, and maybe one to three you know ticker symbols. So very, very straightforward, easy to implement. And then, you know, particularly for more novice investors, it's a very intuitive portfolio. I think, you know, at a very base level, people kind of understand the role of stocks in a portfolio to generate long-term capital appreciation and the role of bonds historically as a source of, you know, ballast to a portfolio, a source of liquidity and income uh, and diversification. And so it kind of checks a lot of the right boxes that, that, that kind of makes it obvious in hindsight why this became such a you know, popular posture for people to implement their portfolios with. And so I think with that uh, has come a little bit of recency bias, not just, uh, you know, the historical call it 50 year plus period of, of delivering meaningful risk adjusted returns, but particularly uh, up until this, you know, year that we're in currently, uh, the, the, the 10 years prior or so, that the whole decade of the 2010s was really an abnormal one for 60 40 in the sense that not only did it you know, outperform its historical average. It did so with with less volatility than than historical. So it was kind of a, a have your cake and eat it too type of environment for a sixty forty. So in, in hindsight, it's obvious why you know people have tended to anchor to this type of portfolio and why it's become a bit of a security blanket for allocators. And it's been a little bit hard for, for many to deviate away from to introduce other types of alternatives or other investments. And so, that being said, I, I think the the notion that 6040 is dead per se is, is a bit hyperbolic. Uh, I'm not one, I'm not a fan of saying it's dead, even though I obviously am advocating that we go beyond 6040, because I think when you with the implication that something is dead is sort of, okay, well, no one's going to use it anymore. And I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. I, I think even if there is greater adoption of alternatives, there's always going to be a subset of investors that prefers the simplicity uh, that comes with the 6040 type of allocation. And I think you know to say that something's gonna die is also gonna imply that it, it might blow up spectacularly. And I think that's also a bit of a a misconception in the sense that, yeah, it's been a very disappointing year for a 6040, you know, one of the worst starts to the year on record for that type of portfolio. But you know, at the end of the day, we're down, you know, double digits, you know, ten to fifteen percent. That's that's not the end of the world. There's a lot worse ways for investors to to blow up their portfolio uh than a sixty forty. And so, um, but I, what I will say is, you know, if it's not dead, I will say it's it, what we're seeing now is a realization that it is vulnerable um, because of, of a couple of things is one is uh, we'll, we'll focus really more on the 40 of the 60-40 in the sense that everyone understands the, the purpose of the stock side of the portfolio. But the, for the 40, I think we got accustomed to the bonds delivering what, you know, all the check boxes I mentioned earlier, you know, stable source of income. Um, diversification benefits, et cetera. And I think those are, are what are being challenged and that yields, despite having risen quite a bit in the last six months, are still historically low and that doesn't bode well for you know long-term total returns. Uh, and, and this idea that this relationship between stocks and bonds, everyone kind of assumed it was written in stone. And I think that's becoming increasingly clear that there can and will be periods in time where the, the, the correlation of stocks and bonds Moves into positive territory as opposed to them having a slightly negative correlation to one another, and, and typically when you see that positive correlation, you know if you look around the corner, usually inflation is 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 right there because that tends to be the, the sort of kryptonite for sixty forty portfolios mm-hmm. that can cause both uh, both asset classes to, to decline uh, in concert with one another, and so you know we're seeing that now, and and, and I think it's uh, certainly created a resurgence of interest in how to. Uh, add additional layers of diversification to a portfolio, which obviously we can can dive a little deeper into uh, uh, today.
1: Yes, so you you mentioned inflation being the the kryptonite and certainly inflation is a sky high at the moment and at the moment doesn't seem to be coming down anytime soon. So lots of investors are looking at their portfolios and wondering what to do about asset allocation and whether to adjust the 60-40 to a 70-30 or a 60-20-20. So let's talk about this sort of this broad umbrella of alternatives and what fits under that umbrella and why are they considered alternative?
0: Yeah, I've always I kind of joke sometimes that the biggest um, challenge that alternatives have is the fact that they're called alternatives. Um, it doesn't do do it any favors because there's so many different asset classes and strategies that that kind of fall under that umbrella because ultimately, it's just sort of a catch-all for anything that doesn't fit neatly into the other two buckets. Um, so that presents a lot of challenges in terms of asset selection and implementation and, and expectation setting, et cetera. And so, and the other you know factor is that it's a continually evolving definition. You know, many times it's in the eye of the beholder what mm-hmm. might be considered alternative to you might not be alternative to me. Uh, and, and it does evolve over time in the sense that there are you know things we can look at historically whether it's emerging market stocks or high yield bonds or publicly traded, you know, wreaths. Those are all things that at one point in time uh, were were a little more frontier and, and a little more on the, on the cutting edge and, and maybe categorized by some as alternative, whereas now they kind of fit more neatly into traditional uh, portfolio construction uh, approaches. Uh, so, so it's kind of a moving target to a degree. So part of what I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about is because um, when you start to look at different types of quote unquote alternatives, you see a lot of similarities to traditional investments and, and what's fun is to try to sort of dissect or isolate what, what are the vari- what's the variable or variables that, that make something that otherwise might be traditional into an alternative and I'll give a couple of examples here. Uh, and, and really it boils down to, to what I kind of use as four or five different variables. one is liquidity so I'll use the example of private equity. You know, private equity is just equity. I don't even really think of it as a, a non-correlated alternative. It's just equity. It just happens to be, you know, illiquid and and in private, uh, held companies. And and so, but it, it's exposed to the same underlying economic risks as as publicly traded equities are. And so, you know, liquidity is certainly one thing that can make something alternative. The same could be said for private debt versus, you know, the, the public uh, market equivalents. Uh, the second variable be variable will be something I would call implementation or unconventional. Implementation, something like, you know, value investing is, is sort of a concept that's as old as the hills. You buy, you know, assets uh, trading at a, a level cheaper than their intrinsic value. Uh, but typically that's been done just through long only, you know, investing in, in the stock market. Um, the, another way to sort of get exposure to the value factor would be to say, hey, I, I want to buy a, a diversified basket of, of uh, cheap stocks and short sell. A, a diversified basket of, of expensive stocks and sort of hedge out the market risk and ultimately be left with just sort of that value factor, uh, sort of a bet on the convergence between cheap and expensive. And so that's a, a very unconventional way to, to really try to uh, uh, achieve the same uh, investment thesis, which is is trying to capture that value premium. And so, you know, the tools there that are used there are a little bit different than most are used to, whether it be, you know, shorting or leverage or derivatives. So those types of those three kind of uh, uh, tools in the toolkit uh, ultimately are a different form of implementation, even if it's the same type of concept. You know, a, th- a third would be packaging. So, just the actual vehicle that that an investment is is housed within. And so, everyone's very accustomed to things like mutual funds and ETFs. Those are very traditional packages or wrappers around an investment. But then you might have something like an interval fund, or perhaps a a limited partnership uh, vehicle, where the packaging itself is kind of what drives uh, its alternative uh, nature. And then lastly, these kind of related but distinct concepts of, of novelty and nascency. Mm-hmm. I'll start with uh, novelty is just kind of, um, you know, what, what, something that, that kind of might be new to you as an investor. It might not be new in general, but I'll use the example of uh, catastrophe reinsurance as an asset class that's existed for centuries. The, what's, what's sort of novel about it is, is the way that investors can now access it. And so it's it's only recently become an investable asset class to your average uh investor. And then nascency is is again sort of represents this sort of newness idea, but to me nascency is something that it, it has only been recently sort of uh discovered uh or unlocked in the sense of something like digital assets or crypto. Um even you know, Bitcoin, the original crypto asset. Uh, really only came about, you know, kind of 0809. And so I'm pretty much a, a teenager in terms of its years as an asset class. And so that kind of falls into the nascency uh, category to, uh, to me. So that's really how I think about it is like, you know, not just like calling something alternative, but rather what makes it alternative in the first place.
1: Great. Uh, before we go on to the next question, I just want to remind the audience that if you'd like to submit a question, please do so uh, in the Q&A feature, because I'll leave a few minutes at the end to go through you know, the audience questions. So lots of people are probably wondering, you know, is now a good time to be considering adding else to their portfolios? You know, Traditionally, uh, you know, uh, institutional investors have been adding alts for many years, but many retail investors have sort of been on the sidelines, but things seem to have been changing in the last few years. So is now a good time? And if they did want to consider adding alts, uh, is there a sort of recommendation of dipping their toe in in terms of how much exposure should be in a portfolio to start out with?
0: Sure. So with the first question, I you know, of course, I think it's it's definitely a, a good time to be examining whether to you know consider adding alternatives to the portfolio. But I would discourage it being a reaction to what's happening in traditional assets. I think that's a mistake that that trips up a lot of investors at times. Is uh, these kind of reactionary timing-based decisions on getting in or getting out of a, a particular asset class, um, whether that be stocks, bonds, or you know, pick your favorite alternative. To me, it's more. Um, if you're, you know, if, if you're not exposed to any yet, it's time to start doing some diligence and doing some homework uh, to, to try to figure out a which which asset classes or strategies have appeal and fit within the context of your overall uh, investment plan and financial plan, uh, and then how to go about implementing them and how to sort of source it and size it within a portfolio. Um, but but I, I, I would definitely discourage folks from saying, okay, well, well, you know, stocks are down, bonds are down, I need to do something now. Even if it's just temporary, to me, I, I look at alternatives as something that should be sort of uh, things that you want to own for the long term, as opposed to renting for the short term, uh, based on some sort of tactical viewpoint. Because you know, as, as challenging as traditional a- assets are to, to to sort of market time, you know, the same goes for alternatives, and so they should be viewed definitely more as strategic holdings than uh, tactical positions. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of portfolio sizing. Again, it, it will vary by investor because there's a lot of considerations that need to be sort of accounted for, whether it's um, tax sensitivity, um, sort of a liquidity budget. There's you know, some very you know, very liquid alternatives, but others that are not so liquid. And so every investor is going to have different um, preferences and um, tolerance for illiquidity in their, in their portfolio. So there's no one size fits all answer. You know, the, the the more the most specific, I, I guess I'll get is that it's got to be enough, in my opinion, to matter uh, to the results of a portfolio, which tends to kind of put you north of 10% of your overall portfolio. You know, you often see portfolios that have, you know, two, three percent and alternatives and maybe spread across a few different funds. And I think that's more cosmetic than than anything else. It's not making a huge impact on the overall portfolio or other than checking a, a box of, of sorts. And so, you know, I think it's got to be enough to matter at the same time. I think there, you know, the, the use of alternatives introduces certain behavioral um, challenges as well. Uh, they can be sometimes that the, the notion of non-correlation sounds great in theory. In practice, it can be really difficult to stick with. Um, uh, you know, many investors abandon alternatives uh, right before they needed them. If you think about the last ten years um, in a big bull market, if you took part of your equity allocation and parked it in some alternatives that you know maybe did okay, but didn't you know hold up as well as stocks when they were ripping, you know that that can test an investor's patience, um, and they they might bail out right before they need that. Uh, diversification the most. And so I, I you know, I think if, if you have too heavy of an alternatives allocation, that it might just introduce more behavioral risk and that it creates a very different portfolio and one that might be difficult to stick with if you're if we're continu- continually judging it against the performance of the stock market or the bond market or what our, you know, neighbors or peers are doing. And so I, I think there's an, a nice balance to be struck between, you know, being enough to matter, but not so much that it, you know, Introduces the risk that you bail out, uh, you know, at the wrong time.
1: Great. Now, Savant so just put out a, a really great white paper on alternative investments, and there's a terrific, I guess, table on popular fund structure that's co- comparing different structures. And I guess the two that are, I guess, liquid are the mutual funds or ETFs and the interval funds. So perhaps we could spend a bit of time just sort of what's what falls under the sort of mutual fund ETFs umbrella, and then what falls under sort of interval funds. And I guess a question I also would, would ask is why are they called interval funds?
0: Sure, sure. Yeah. So I think there's an assumption that li- that liquidity is sort of binary and it's really not. It really falls on a spectrum, you know, and if we look at both ends of the spectrum, you've got the, the most liquid, which would be things that you can package nicely into an ETF or a mutual fund. And obviously there's a lot of convenience that comes with those those wrappers. Uh, and then the other extreme would be a you know private equity or venture capital fund that uh, is an LP structure and you're locking up your money for at least 10 years, if not 12 to 15 years. Um, and there's really no no no. Opportunity for redemption uh, ahead of time. So, um, you know, between there, there's actually a handful of other wrappers that that kind of um, straddle the fence and, and have some of the characteristics of both sides. And so, interval funds are, are one example. But I, I guess to your earlier question, like what what goes nicely into a, a mutual fund or ETF? Like, you know, essentially anything that's that's really liquid, because um, it kind of has to be. Like by by regulation, mutual funds and, and ETFs can't hold. Uh, more than 15% of their assets and anything that's deemed to be illiquid. So, you know, it kind of caps uh, or limits what, what uh, exposures or, or asset classes or, or even options in that, in that wrapper. Uh, interval funds don't have that same uh, restriction. And it's because, uh, as the name implies, that with interval fund, um, in some cases you can buy them daily, but uh, the, the differentiating feature versus a mutual fund is really in that ability to, to redeem or sell uh, daily. Uh, so as opposed to daily, it's often with interval funds quarterly redemption windows, uh, and, and there's also uh, the potential for gates to be imposed. And so rather than being able to sell on a daily basis, you've got you know one period per quarter where you can submit a redemption. And then the caveat though is that you know maybe in most times uh, you know you assume that you get you know for every hundred dollars you submit to get back, you get a hundred in return. You know, there's always a chance that a gate can be imposed, and that would happen if more, you know, that the fund itself is required to repurchase, uh, you know, at least 5% of outstanding shares in a given quarter. But if more investors look to redeem than that in a given quarter, there's, there's a chance that your investment uh, might get prorated in terms of your liquidity. And so it's a really important to consideration for anyone who's looking at interval funds to keep in mind is that, you know, A, it's, it's it's only opportunities to redeem on a quarterly basis, and even that is not a guarantee that you will get full liquidity each and every quarter. And so, you know, even though there are those windows each quarter, it's certainly, the you know, the the asset classes underneath the hood, you really want to treat them as multi-year long-term investments, uh, you know, due to that liquidity feature. But that's, I would say it is definitely a feature, not a bug in the sense that what you don't want to have happen is. In any fund structure, a liquidity mismatch that ultimately leads to a sort of run in the bank type scenario where you're forced to kind of fire sale um, illiquid assets. That's not a good outcome for anybody. And so really that that gate mechanism in an interval fund is there for the protection of, uh, of, of shareholders.
1: Okay, great. So that white paper that uh, your firm has put out also you know, introduces uh, several alternatives um, with potential to serve as what I guess complements to the traditional stock bond portfolio. And some of the examples were reinsurance, you know, trend following or managed futures, event driven real assets, and, and direct lending. And um, perhaps we can sort of pick one or two of those and take a closer look. Uh, I'm quite curious about sort of the reinsurance. Is that the catastrophe bonds?
0: It is, yeah. So we can start there and maybe move on to any of the other ones there. And, and really the, the five categories we focused on in the paper were obviously relevant to how we manage portfolios at Savant. But also we wanted to focus on uh, alternative asset classes that your sort of average investor can access. You don't have to be a you know qualified purchaser or, or credit investor necessarily to, to, to get exposure to these asset classes. And so we really wanted to focus there. And so reinsurance is interesting. It's it's essentially, if you're not familiar, it's uh, insurance for insurance companies. And so, uh, as an investor, you you know, insurance a reinsurance exposure can come in the form of a handful of different types of what they call insurance-linked securities or ILS. Uh, The most common type of ILS is a catastrophe bond. Um, That is the most liquid end of the reinsurance spectrum. Another type of ILS would be something called a quota share, which is a um, an illiquid investment. And so. Uh, depending on which you know type of ILS you're trying to to focus on, uh, there are mutual fund options out there as well as interval fund options. But you know, really, the the idea of reinsurance is that the, the underlying risks are non-financial; that they're not related to inflation or uh, interest rates or you know economic growth. It's really um, natural events and and catastrophe risk that you're you're, you're bearing, and so. Um, Things like hurricanes, earthquakes, wildfires, um, you know, scary, scary things that can do a lot of damage. Uh, But ultimately, that's that's why you're being compensated as an investor. And and the notion with any sort of um, insurance business or reinsurance business is that over time and on average, um, you you price that insurance in a way that you're collecting more in premium that you pay out in claims. And so uh, it doesn't mean that every year is going to be a great year. We've seen a handful of of, of challenging years uh, for reinsurance in, in the late 2010s. Uh, just because there was a, a higher degree of, of of kind of medium-sized natural catastrophic events. Um, but with that, the, the reinsurance industry as a whole sort of reprices. And so much like, you know, some of the best times to buy equities are when they're on sale or when uh, high-yield bonds when yields go up. You know, you tend to, the, the best time to buy reinsurance is probably after those really tough periods because rates are going to reset uh, at, at higher levels Um uh, and so, you know, that's a really interesting asset class because it's one of the few really truly non-correlated sources of return that are out there. Uh, and it also is is typically floating rate in nature. And so, there's a a little bit of a, a, a boost that, that comes from rates going up as well. So, um, you know, that's one we like. It's a you know kind of serves as a core diversifier. Uh, can be complementary to both stocks and bonds.
1: Great. Well, you mentioned risk and in our time remaining, we should probably touch on what some of the risk or considerations are that investors need to be aware of. So I think liquidity is is one thing. And I guess what, what the tax implications are.
0: Yeah. Tax is obviously something that we, we focus on very um, intently here at Savant. And so, um, you know, I would, I w- it's not a broad generalization, but I would say more, more often than not, you know, alternatives tend to be less tax efficient than, say, like, an, you know, an S&P 500 index fund. And, and so we want to be obviously, you know, aware of the expected uh, returns pre-tax, but also what are our expectations after tax. And so um, the tax inefficiency that can come from alternatives are, are really kind of twofold. One could be from something like direct lending, which is, um, you know, kind of private credit. You know, almost all your return from that asset class is going to come from income or yield, which will be taxed at, you know, ordinary income rates. And so, you know, Obviously, that can take a big bite out of your after-tax return, but it also presents opportunities for for proper asset location. So we talk a lot about asset allocation, how you divide your assets between you know different buckets. But asset location is really a, a reference to what type of account you hold different investments in. And so many investors have you know taxable brokerage accounts and IRAs and Roth IRAs, et cetera. And so you know what we try to optimize for is really how do we Best house the right types of investments in the right type of, of, of uh, account uh, type, and so things that, that pay out a high degree of current income, or maybe things that are higher turnover in nature that have uh, a propensity to to dish out uh, year end capital gains, uh, if at all possible, it, it often makes sense to house those in, in a tax deferred uh, or tax exempt uh, account type like a like an IRA or a Roth, um, and so so you know that that whole concept of asset location does become more important or prominent when it comes to evaluating alternatives.
1: Great. Well, we've got lots of questions from the audience, I'm going to switch over to that now and just let you, uh, the audience know that for compliance reasons, uh, Phil can't mention specific funds or tickers. So the first question here is from Samuel, and he says, in the future, will investors source alternative investments from self-directed platforms or through intermediaries?
0: I think it'll be both. I, I actually wrote about that in my book, in the sense that there are a lot of these emergent uh, kind of fintech, call it platforms or apps that are, are, are kind of going direct to consumer for different alternative categories. You've seen it in, um, you know, real estate or collectibles or crypto, and, and uh, a litany of other uh, asset classes. And so I think you'll see a blend. I think there are certain categories that I think you do want uh, an intermediary, uh, you know, potentially involved in to just kind of help the end investor you know, diligence and source and provide thoughtful advice around. Um, uh, but at the same time, I think it's, it's helpful and just a, a good thing for investors to have optionality or choice in terms of how they access um, uh, different investments. So I, I think, I think it might work better for some asset classes than it, than it will for others. Uh, but I think there's, there's a, a world that exists that, that both can kind of, you know, live in harmony with one another. But right. but I, I think it's a trend that's certainly not going away of, of, of uh, uh, having those, those types of platforms that, that do go direct-to-consumer. Okay,
1: so Levi wants to know, has too much uh, retail money been flowing into private equity and VC with the advent of these platforms that have been trying to democratize the use of else? He says, never mind the portfolios, but even in general, has too much money gone into the private space without seeing the consequences of the lack of mark-to-market?
0: I think so. A couple responses there. One is I, I think the the argument is more could be more painted as is there too much money in general going into you know things like private equity, not necessarily via intermediaries or advisors or individual investors, but just in general the the, the you know larger institutional allocators like uh, you know private equity and private debt. They've they've grown by leaps and bounds. Uh, there's a lot of attractive features to the asset class, but just like you know public uh, you know markets that they're you know, can be ebbs and flows in valuation. And uh, obviously valuation can play a big role in long-term return outcomes. And so um, I think a case could be made that perhaps private equity is, is you know, at, at a period where, where valuations have gotten a little bit stretched. But at the same time, like, the, you know, if you're investing in those asset classes, it, it shouldn't be in one vintage, at, you know, it should be more of a diversified, you know, kind of multi-year program where you sort of, uh, you know, mitigate some of that vintage year risk. Um, so I, I think, you um, there could be potential for that. I don't see it yet today. I think there, there were still maybe early innings in terms of the accessibility of, of private funds for, um, you know, high net worth and accredited investors. Um, and I think these platforms um, that are out there are, are, are providing a valuable service uh, in terms of just making that whole experience easier, both for the advisor as well as the, the end client. Um, but I, again, I think that the the attractiveness of asset classes, again, can ebb and flow over time. Um, But that's sure that shouldn't completely dissuade someone from considering uh, an allocation, because that that can certainly go go the other direction as well.
1: Okay, so Albert has a question that relates to retirement and and he says, how does the asset allocation mix uh, that is a 6040 to the rate that retirees can withdraw from their portfolio in retirement.
0: Could you, could you, I'm sorry, could you repeat that one?
1: Sure. How does the asset allocation mix, for example, a 60-40 relate to the rate that retirees can withdraw from their portfolio in retirement?
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously that's a, a huge uh, consideration because what, what 60-40 delivered from a sort of yield and total return expectation standpoint 20 years ago is a lot different than today. And so, um you know, maybe the same rules of thumb, if you will, don't necessarily apply when it comes to withdrawal rates. Um, and and so I think, you know, again, kind of we have to be a little more flexible and creative with how we we construct portfolios that can, you know, achieve reasonable rates of return that, that can support those withdrawal needs. And obviously, every investor or retiree is going to have a different, you know, withdrawal need. You know, I think maybe the, the days of, of having a a uh, you know really really conservative portfolio of, of almost exclusively fixed income and in retirement that that gets really really challenging if your withdrawal rate's too high and so you know in a way the the, the two sort of levers to pull are, are getting comfortable with more equity risk uh, because we are you know living longer lives and need need our, our portfolios to support us for a greater period of time and so you need that that long term growth of equities uh, but also so you know tapping into uh, some of the the you know, tools we have today on the alternative side that can help augment traditional portfolios and creating, you know, higher yield, higher total return expectations, broader diversification. So um, hopefully that answers the question.
1: Yep. So James asks, uh, what do you think about floating rate funds such as senior secured bank loan funds?
0: um, You know, there's there's always a lot of interest around floating rate uh, when rates start to to go up because there's that that natural intuition of, of wanting to, Of shield a fixed income portfolio from rising rates, I would say that you know, obviously, you know, bank loan funds and and their counterparts that you know, we got to just remember that's non investment grade debt, and so there is credit risk there. And um, for borrowers that that do have floating rate exposure, if you're um, challenged financially and and those rates go up too high, that could create some stress uh, from a solvency standpoint. So, I I think you know, it's it can. Floating rate can certainly play a role in a portfolio, but it's not a panacea. Uh, and, and you know, really, the, the, it's a kind of exchanging one risk for another. You're sort of mitigating that interest rate risk component, but you are taking on, you know, credit risk of non-investment grade, you know, uh, credit. So important to, to keep that in mind and understand the the potential downside. And, and we've seen, you know, pre. Rough periods in the past, both for high yield bonds as well as bank loans, where you can see some pretty significant drawdowns. So, I I think sized appropriately, they can certainly play a role, but they're not a complete replacement for uh, core fixed income.
1: Great. So, Matthew asks for clients who need the daily liquidity of the public markets, what's the best way to gain access to the various alts?
0: Yeah. So, I I would say that, and this is in our paper, which is available on our website if you want to. Uh, download it's fully you know free of charge no gate or anything like that but um you know of the five categories we cover in there three are are pretty broadly accessible through liquid you know mutual fund etf type investments those are uh you know within reinsurance that catastrophe bond uh specific component uh, can be can be done in a mutual fund Uh, things like managed futures or trend following strategies can be done uh, you know, pretty well inside of a mutual fund. And then another category will be uh, kind of broadly called event-driven, which uh, takes advantage of things like merger arbitrage and other sort of uh, trading strategies around corporate events. And, and there's a handful of, of, of liquid funds that operate in that space as well. And so, um, so, so, yeah, it, it is a more limited universe of, of categories or, or asset classes, but there are, there are also some pretty solid options there for investors to explore.
1: Great. So I think we answered this question earlier with talking about catastrophe bonds, but Steve asks, you mentioned an investor can now bet on natural disasters and as an alternative investment, what is the investment instrument? Is that the reinsurance and the catastrophe bonds?
0: Yeah. Important distinction though, you're not betting on uh, natural disasters. Um, You're, you're, you're insuring them um, effectively. And so you're, you're bearing the risk of natural disasters. And so they're, you know, what, what I will say is um, there's a, a notion that if you're an investor in reinsurance, oh well, geez, if there's a hurricane or a wildfire, you know, is it going to wipe me out? Like, no, like, like any, like any asset class, you want it to be highly diversified. Um, and so exposure to a number of different geographies and different peril types. Uh, and also, again, this is um, you, you kind of go in knowing there will be uh, natural disasters. The, the, the idea is that, um, if you think about, you know, you're paying out claims when, when things bad, when bad things happen. The ultimate, ultimately, you want to collect more in premium than you pay out in claims. So, um, so that's kind of the concept there is that you, you know, that that bearing that reinsurance risk, it does not, you know, it's not charity. You're you're, you're you know doing it at a premium, and that premium is not sold at, at cost um, because you are taking on this this risk transfer. Uh, uh, here and you're you're providing a risk transfer service to the marketplace. And so as an investor, you should be compensated over time for that activity.
1: Great. So we're almost out of time. I'm going to try and squeeze in uh, uh, two last questions. Joshua asks, have you thought about art as an alternative uh, asset class? For example, if there was an art fund that diversified across well-known artists, um, art as being a high appreciation, low correlation asset?
0: Yeah, I mean... we it's a little tricky there's not um a, a art is not something that can be done in, in a liquid wrapper uh, at least not not today um you know there are at least one that i'm aware of there's a an app or a platform out there that that focuses exclusively on, on kind of fine art um so so there is there is more interest and attention pay there you know if you look at some of the data or indexes out there that, that focus on art you know does have an attractive risk reward profile but it's also, you know, again, that, that it's kind of before the era of fractionalization and being able to buy sort of a piece of a, a work of art as, as opposed to buying the whole, uh, you know, painting and not, and uh, not, not many people have the, you know, wherewithal to purchase a, a you know, really, you know, uh, valuable fine art painting. So, um, you know, I, I think the, the challenge with art and, and this extends to things like collectibles is uh, the lack of, of cash flows or any sort of valuation technique. It, it, you know, it, it, at the end of the day, it still becomes sort of a speculative investment. Um, you're just betting that someone else in the future is going to pay a higher price than you pay today. Um, so it, when I put on my evidence-based investor hat and, and try to fit that into an evidence-based allocation framework, it becomes somewhat challenging. It's not to say that it can't be room in a portfolio for something a bit more speculative uh, like that. It's just, uh, you know, again, it kind of needs to be thought of as, as sort of that uh, uh, in that framework, I think.
1: Okay. And final question from Hal, uh, who asks, what returns should one reasonably expect from private equity on average over time after the higher fees?
0: Yeah, I think one is, um, we, we should talk about the risk side too, which we didn't really get to, is I think the the, the lack of mark-to-market, I think, creates this sort of veil of, of uh, diversification and and, and lack of risk, but, but just because something doesn't mark-to-market doesn't make, mean it's not risky. If it's not, you know, volatile, so private equity is just as risky, if not more risky, than you know, than uh, public equities. You know, the other challenge with uh, private equity is that there's a much greater degree of dispersion in performance uh, across managers than there is in public markets. And so y- y- your uh, experience being successful or unsuccessful is going to be very contingent on what managers you're getting exposure to in that private market world. And so that could be the difference between, you know, outperformance versus a public market equivalent or uh, or, or significant underperformance. And so manager selection is very critical within that that world. Um, you know, so it's hard to, again, so you can have an expectation on private equity industry returns, but there's no private equity sort of index to invest in. You have to select managers and that that's, that's going to, you know, really make or break. And so, you know, it's hard to come up with a, 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 I can't give a really hard number on what the expected return for private equity is going to be. There has historically been a premium to public equities, but much like public equities can go through periods of, you know, low expect, low realized returns because of high valuations, the same can happen to to private equities as well. And so you would expect some amount of illiquidity premium, but that's, you know, again, that's kind of on a gross basis. When you start to net out fees and everything, it remains to be seen whether the you know, the GP or the LP is going to actually be the one that, that captures that illiquidity premium. And so that being said, I think there's, there's a, a perhaps underrated aspect of private equity investing in that it probably creates a better investor experience, even if you, you know setting aside return expectations, even if you assume the same net of fee returns as public markets, I, I think that could, you know, in and of itself, create a better investor experience because <laughs> we can't get it in our own way. Uh, when things are volatile and, and run the risk of selling at a low or buying at a high, I think, you, you know, I hook you know, by hook or by crook, you, you know, if you make an investment in private equity, you're, you're in it for the long run, whether you like it or not. And so I think that can almost, you know, create a mechanism for forcing better investment behavior when you can't, uh, you know, uh, succumb to the, to the, you know, siren, siren song of, of the market.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, thanks, Phil. Unfortunately, that's uh, all we have time for today. Um, but to the audience, if you're interested in learning more about alternatives, uh, pick up a copy of Phil's book. And as he mentioned, you can also download uh, the firm's latest white paper on Alts. And I, I highly recommend it. You can find that at savantwealth.com. And I believe it's under the, the views and news tab. You'll see uh, white papers there. So thank you all for tuning in. Um, thanks very much to Phil for being here. We hope you can listen to our episode tomorrow. Market Watch reporter Eleanor Lays talks with Seth Leonard of the Vermont Housing Finance Agency about state and local policies that can help ease the housing shortage. Thank you so much for listening. Be well and have a wonderful day.
0: The energy transition is a long and winding road and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.